Listener note, The Strange and Beautiful Book Club contains reviews of sci-fi, fantasy, and horror media and is not a spoiler-free podcast. Please be sure to watch or read the story in today's episode before listening. Hello, friends. I'm Rachel. And I'm Matt. Welcome to The Strange and Beautiful Book Club. (laughs) Cue the theme song. Thank you, Pippin. Welcome to episode one of the Strange and Beautiful Book Club podcast, Nosferatu. Welcome. So, starting off, first impressions before we get into the synopsis. Uh, it wasn't the worst vampire movie. It was still a better love story than Twilight. <laughs> okay, we can keep cliche Twilight jokes to a minimum. That would be... We can edit that out. Superb. What? I'm not editing that out. That's staying in here. But if you say the word sparkle, it's coming out. It's coming out. All right. This is considered one of the first vampire movies. So I felt like it made the perfect place for us to start our podcast. Uh, so we're going to start off each podcast with a little chat through the movie, through the events of the movie, and then get a, get a little bit more into our feelings about it afterwards. So this particular movie, Nosferatu was made in 1922. Uh, it stars Max Schreck as Count Orlock, or the titular Nosferatu, and was directed by F.W. Murnau. Murnau. <laughs> Murnau. <laughs> uh, so we started out with a diary entry, first title card, uh, super dramatic. And then the opening scene is definitely we're establishing a happy-go-lucky Everyone's dancing in the sunlight, lady playing with cats, running down the sunlit walk. How are we feeling at this point in the movie? Um. <laughs> I, got a, I got a narrowed eye look. I feel like as modern viewers, we know where we're going. We know where we're heading. Right, you're setting up the contrast. We know we're setting up a contrast. We know we're, we're starting out in the high place, so we have pretty far to fall. I'm wondering, as viewers in 1922, if you would necessarily be as aware of how set up you were being. Well, there were no tropes. There was no precedent for this kind of movie. Yeah, so this was really setting a scene where we're we're thinking we're getting into kind of a positive movie. Um But, so after the lots of laughing, day-to-day stuff, kissing, and just in general establishing that they're happy together, um, we have the main character who in one version we watched was Hutter, and in the other version we watched was Harker, so we can assume he is the stand-in for the Harker character from Dracula, um, walking down a sunny road greeting people, and a friend walks up and says, wait, young man. You can't escape destiny by running away. 
which proves that even a hundred years ago, someone somewhere in the first act must state the theme, since clearly that's the theme of Nosferatu that we go to, into after this. Uh, Jonathan, or Hutter, then gets tempted into being the Count's realtor through a dubiously tempting statement, such as, you might have to give a little blood, and don't worry about what they say about this being the land of ghosts. But uh, clearly, Hutter is keener to support his young wife than he is to listen to what is obviously a horrible sales pitch from his super creepy boss. Well, it's never established if Nock is his boss. Nock slash Renfield. Well, uh, in the second version we watched, it says that everyone knew he was strange, but that he paid his employees well. So it's implied... Oh, and that he's talking to Hutter, it's in, so it's implied that... Yes, it's implied that, that Hutter is... Gotcha. Yeah. So then we have sort of a traveling montage. He sets up on a horse. Definitely looks like he steals this horse from the fellow in the square. Uh, rides off with a smile on his face. And arrives at a tavern where he asks for some food because he's headed up to see Count Orlock, or in the one version we watched, actually Count Dracula. And seems not at all alarmed that literally every village person in the tavern then drops what they're doing to stare at him in uh, mute horror. While the innkeeper approaches him and literally tells him nobody goes there on account of the werewolves, right? Right. So they mention a werewolf. Nobody at any point mentions that Count Orlock is, oh, I don't know, an immortal, evil, blood-sucking creature of the night. But they do seem pretty fixated on the idea that there is a werewolf between here and there, which, as it turns out, is a hyena. With painted stripes on With it. With painted stripes on it. Which, to be fair, in 1922, it is possible that the idea and image of a hyena had not so pervaded the popular culture. And Most it might people have, at the time had probably never seen a hyena so it or a picture been, of a hyena. Yeah, far more alarming in 1922 and rather like I'm wondering how the hyena was treated, where it was kept. Uh, <laughs> definitely awoke a couple animal rights questions in me to see the painted hyena running around sadly on the side of a hill chasing some sheep. Um, so he finds a book, Hutter finds a book in his room at the inn, aptly named The Book of Vampires. Uh, yeah, which he then takes to reading, flips through a couple of pages, and then is like, you know what, I'm pretty sure this isn't going to be relevant to my life, laughs and tosses it to the side. Uh, There's a is... lot of Hutter throwing his head back, laughing. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, for this silent movie, we have basically have three elements to work with. We have setting, we have lighting, and we have body language. So clearly, the actor playing Hutter was selling it. He had to throw back his head and laugh. Lots of smiles, lots of dramatic fainting, lots of trying to convey an emotion without being able to use his voice. So to be fair does a fairly good job yeah, of that. And nobody sat up out of bed calmly. No, never. I mean, I never sit up out of bed calmly. I feel like I'm either prone 
or I am rising in terror. Um, but that may just be because I have two small children. Uh, yes, the pitter-patter of feet charging towards your bedroom raises your awareness pretty quickly. Yes. So Hutter, having slept through the evening's hyena-slash-werewolf excursion, uh, wakes up in the morning, looks out his window to see the merry scene of lots of townsfolk chasing their horses back over the fields after the werewolf scared them away the night previous. Um, he finds this highly amusing, washes his face, and then, against literally what everyone else would feel would be his better judgment, hops on a stagecoach to head to the castle. Oh, but not castle. before he takes another look at the vampire book, throws his head back, laughs, and then throws the book on the floor. Yes. And then we cut to him getting on the stagecoach. Right, because we just needed to drive that one last wooden stake, if you will, of foreshadowing as to what we were about to head into. So he hops on the stagecoach headed to the Count's castle. Uh, The stagecoach refuses to continue after a certain point, and he has to continue on foot. But not for long. Not for long, because he does encounter another stagecoach. Moving at double speed. Which, I have to say, Hutter's powers of observation are highly suspect. (laughs) He's a salesman. He's paid to ignore red flags. I feel like a fast-moving stagecoach covered in black fabric, towed by two horses covered in shrouds. Pulled by a gentleman with a hat with a jaunty feather who appears... You mean a deep cowl. Deep cowl and jaunty feather. Uh, that's not just some red flags. That's that's like a whole firework, 4th of July, red herring. I mean... When you look at the world through rose-colored glasses, red flags just, just look, look like, like regular flags. flags. Yeah, well... Hutter apparently has quite the pair of red uh, rose-colored glasses because he is not at all discouraged by that. Uh, It then moves at double speed, or quickly, we are to assume, to the castle. Uh, So he looks at the castle, which is literally disgorging bats into the sky in a way that is in no way ominous. Uh, And when they walk into the castle, the gates close behind them. So the fellow driving, or is it Orlock who shows up next? And he tells Jonathan slash Hutter that he's late and it's midnight, which. Okay. So uh, this was, I thought this was interesting. It's obviously Orlock driving the carriage, drops Hutter off at the front, drives the carriage away, presumably to the stables. And then Hutter walks in and standing in front of him, Slightly different outfit, at least he's taken off the robe and the cowl and the hat and whatever, uh, is Orlock. Uh, so it was probably a little disorienting for Hutter in that moment because the stagecoach driver is now in front of him in much nicer clothes, uh, telling him that he's late. Yes, and in a way which we have come to establish Hutter reacts to literally every ominous thing that happens to him 
He completely disregards its importance to his safety and continues on with his mission of selling this strange man some real estate. So in the first version we watched, they state that it's midnight and it very obviously And is all the day, help is asleep. And it very obviously is daytime. And we did watch a second version where they had tinted day and night to sort of aid the modern viewer in Right, because at the time disbelief. the camera needed lots of light. You couldn't shoot the camera in dim light. So, so definitely that statement had a lot more import when we were watching the one with where it was tinted. So we were it was obviously It nighttime. was blue, so we knew it was night. It was blue, so we knew it was night. And then the next scene, it was red, so we knew it was morning. Yes, and it's breakfast. And Jonathan starts getting spooked. Huzzah! He has finally noticed that his situation may He's not hit, be... hit the threshold. He has hit the threshold. He's finally got enough checks in the what-the-fuck column, and he's more than willing now to think, hey, maybe I have made a mistake somewhere along this journey. Uh, definitely not aided by the fact that he, while cutting his bread in the weirdest way possible, cuts his thumb. And the Count, who is attempting to hide his inhuman qualities behind a jaunty bonnet <laughs> simply can't resist the idea of uh jonathan's uh, oh dear Hutter's. your precious blood <laughs> oh dear your precious blood so he goes over and sucks his guest's thumb which you know different customs different places but still sucking someone's thumb is usually not a good sign uh, so Dracula slash Orlock is hitting the vibe a little hard after he's licking the guy's finger and, uh, forces him to stay and chat. So Hutter actually retreats to a chair by the fire and, uh, uh it seems like he's hypnotized and he's forced to walk to the chair and sit down and attend to the count. Yes, because we wake up in the morning and he's still in the same chair. Uh, and he wakes up to find fresh food, but also fresh puncture wounds on his neck, which clearly Orlok is out of practice because they are directly over his esophagus. And side by side. And side by side. Uh, not side by side, but like top and bottom. We're, we're working. No, there were one on the left, one on the right. Yes. So he, And he writes it in the letter to his wife yes, or fiance, whatever. Slash lady love. Uh so, because it's morning and he's hungry and Hutter is who he is, he decides to eat um, and may make today a better day than yesterday. So he walks out the front door and goes on a little hike. Yeah, heads out for a sunny stroll around the grounds. Uh, oh, he a, stops at a tower and writes a letter. Yes, he does write a letter, which has an appalling amount of white space, depending on the version that you're Which watching. is probably to facilitate the silent movie text panels yeah and he attributes the bites on his neck to mosquitoes and is like whoa i gotta tell you i'm having some bad dreams while i'm here which uh yeah so we've pretty much figured at this point hunter isn't the brightest bulb yeah. oh and then he just walks out front and there happens to be somebody riding a horse Yes, which were the first version we some watched. Some guy. Some guy wandering around the countryside distributing letters at will. Uh, who in the first version we watched, which was unrestored, appeared pantless. But we were happy to note in the restored version that he is, in fact, wearing pants. 
so after flagging down the mailman and uh, delivering his letter to be sent off to Ellen slash Mina, his lady love, uh, he goes back to sign some paperwork with the Count because he did come here to sell him some real estate. And by God, this man is going to sell this guy some real estate. He's a closer. He's a closer. He always be closing. ABC. ABC. I mean, bite my neck, hypnotize me, whatever. Listen, I'm here for the sale. He gets the coffee. He gets the <laughs> uh, And as he is pulling his paperwork out of the bag, a picture of Ellen slash Mina falls out of his bag. And Orlock, truly committed to his vibe. What says, a pretty neck <laughs> your says, wife has. Is that your wife? What a lovely throat. Uh, and Jonathan's like, yeah. Uh, oh, that's right. They use the word throat. Throat. Yeah. It's even more suggestive. Uh, so he goes back. And luckily, he brought his reference novel, The Book of Vampires. So the he, one that he threw, around, threw on the ground and laughed. Yes. Apparently, he packed in his bag. <laughs> he was reading anyway. But now he reads the book in a fit of suspicion. And finds all of his fears confirmed. There's something fishing going on. Fishy going on. So he opens the door and the count. <laughs> so the door, which is obviously like pasteboard painted to look like wood. And it has no latch or doorknob of any kind. He pulls open. And Orlock is dispensed with his jaunty bonnet. Dispensed with what... Thinly veiled pretense he has attempted to make up to this point and is just creeping outside this dude's door. So he stares down the hallway and there's Orlock in his full glory. Bald, weirdly hairy, creepy, uh, just standing there. And the, the pattern for all monster vampires. Yes. For it's, future vampire movies. It's the looks out the window and sees a creepy guy staring at you from the woods. It's the opens your bedroom door to find there is someone down the hallway. It's the looks in the mirror and sees somebody standing behind you moment from every horror movie from and here on out. bald head, pointed like uh, ridged ears, extra long fingers that are pointy on the end. Yeah, so it's yeah. it's nineteen twenty two Uncanny Valley. He's just human enough, but also just inhuman enough to kind of hit that creepy factor. He's not hitting it for us because we have that modern sensibility. But if you can kind of suspend your modern eyes for a moment and imagine that you've literally never seen anything like this before. This is a creepy moment. Because this guy's in this castle. He's got no one. He's all alone. He's far from home. He's in a room he can't lock. He opens the door. And there is Orlock. Just ears out, claws up, living his life. Ready to have a moment. And Harker slash Hutter does the only thing he can think to do in that moment. Which is shut the door and go hide under the covers on his bed. Uh, so in an act of bravery, he hides under the blanket. And meanwhile, far across the land, his lady love, Nina slash Ellen, Ellen senses shit's gone sideways. 
So she sits up in bed as if in a Abruptly. Trance. Abruptly. Because we can't just sit up. That's ridiculous. Why sit up when you can dramatically rise from bed as if in a trance and sleepwalk out onto your balcony? So then we get an iconic creepy shadow scene uh, with Hutter where Orlock is claws out, hovering over Harker slash Hutter, who is still bravely hiding in his bed. And Nina, still channeling whatever's going on with her true love, calls out for Hutter. And then bravely, heroinly, heroically, heroically. (laughs) I was trying to make the word heroin, heroic, heroic, but that's... Adverb of heroin. Adverb of heroin passes out. So then Hutter, who is not dead, wakes up the next morning, having bravely slept all night. Uh, and I guess we can assume at this point that he gets fed from a second time because he runs out of his room and down into the crypt where he finds the coffin. And Orlock is just chillaxing in the coffin, dormant for the day. But this isn't a nice coffin. This is a raggedy box it's pretty ratchet there's literally like rotted holes in the top which conveniently allows you to see orlock's face through one of the rotted holes yeah and i feel like the the actor in this i mean the actor in this moment sells dead face i mean i believe this guy's dead and dormant for the day Mm -hmm. so i mean hutter is finally like okay 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 this this is shit's fucked up So he goes back to his room for um, safety because there's still no latch. There's still no doorknob, but there is his blankie. So he goes back. Familiarity. Familiarity. And he looks out his window to see Orlock is speed loading a bunch of coffins. Literally speed loading a bunch of coffins. So he stacks up a couple of coffins, puts the top one on, lays down on it, and the lid magically moves to cover him up. Ooh. Ooh. He makes a rope. Oh, yes. Hutter. Who we have previously established is more than capable of simply opening the door and walking outside because that's where he met the man wandering about on his horse distributing letters. And also Hutter, who watched this whole thing from his window, he knows that Orlock is literally in a box. And gone. And the horse pulled the cart away, (laughs) thinks, I can't use the door. (laughs) He might come get me. So he makes a rope with his sheets and escapes through the window that he is no way locked into this door, into this room, but he still uses the window to escape and he falls dramatically as he does everything dramatically, climbing out the window and passes out again. So then we cut to a barge going down the river, which we assume is carrying. With the coffins. Yes. So in the first version we watched, you could not see what was on the barge. But in the restored version, you can clearly see. It is the coffins that Orlock loaded onto his little... In the same exact arrangement. In the same exact arrangement. That Orlock loaded Uh, them on the Heading down the river towards the coast to be loaded onto a ship. Uh, Then we have a small interlude to establish that Harker slash Hutter has been picked up and taken to a hospital. And uh, he wakes up shouting about coffins filled with earth and then passes back out dramatically and bravely. And the doctor conferring with someone else uh, informs the viewer that Hutter was found by some peasants 
uh, looking like he'd fallen down the mountain. Oh, and he has a fever. And he has a fever. Because, as we'll learn shortly, Nosferatu is um, a disease vector. Uh, so clearly he has given poor Hutter not only... He does only, not brush his teeth. He does not brush his teeth. And then, you know. So we cut to the coffins at a port of call. And some sailors flip over the coffin and out come a bunch of rats. Uh, it's full of dirt. It's full of dirt, but also rats, which we established were varmints since in the one version we watched. They're at the port of they Varma. They're at the port of Varma. So these are some varmints. Uh, so we cut to another long title card introducing Van Helsing, who is Van Helsing in one version and... Bulwer. Bulwer. And Bulwer. The font on the second movie was... A bold choice. A bold choice. Uh, the R <laughs> looked like a V. They were kind of going for a cursive script thing. Who knows? Uh, anyway, it was... Some words were hard to decipher. Yeah. Key to this scene was one of my favorite lines in the movie. And that is that the Venus flytrap is... That plant is the vampire of the vegetable kingdom. So it's probably my favorite description of a Venus flytrap ever. Uh, that plant is the vampire of the vegetable kingdom. And we find out that Renfield is Orlok's Renfield. He's Nock in one version. He's Renfield in the other version. And Nock is the employer who employed Hutter slash Harker to head out to his... Uh, Fate, which, to be fair, um, Nock did absolutely nothing to obfuscate how shady this shit was going to be, and Hutter just could not pick up what he was putting down. So He just saw dollar signs. He just saw dollar signs. And uh, headed out to his doom, maybe? We shall find out shortly. Uh, so Renfield is taken to the hospital, some sort of psychiatric hospital. So Renfield has been taken to a hospital, which I assume we are to believe is a psychiatric hospital, circa 1922. Which, the room's pretty nice. I mean, it's like probably 20 feet by 30 feet. By 20 feet. It's strangely tall. And he's also done some scratching into the wall in what we can assume is that strange Orlockian oh, yes. script. The scene where Nock is introduced, he's reading a piece of paper that has... Some combination of scribbles and geometric symbols that is maybe the Transylvanian language. Rachel calls it Orlockian. <laughs> uh, and then when Hutter is uh, signing paperwork with the Count, there's another piece of paper there with the Count with the same script on it. Yes. So... Yes, so Renfield, who is in some sort of facility, let's call it, let's generously call it that, is um, for effect, perhaps, snatching bugs and eating them in an obvious bid to look sane. My only problem with this scene is he is snatching the bugs with his left hand and eating them with his right without any uh, effort to make it appear as if he's transferring these 
bugs from one hand to the other. But, I mean, the guy's selling it. He's got a lot of prosthetics going on. He's got some janky teeth. He's got some faux fur on his head. He's got a hunchback. He's got a hunchback. I mean, he's he's really committed to this role. Uh, we get lots of carnivore Ill imagery in the next couple of scenes. Plants, polyps, spiders catching a bug in his web. So, obviously, we are getting to... Orlock is unleashed. He's been hanging out in his castle for too long and he is really ready to just be wilding all over uh, the, the town that he is heading to, which had two different names depending on what you were watching. Uh, so the Nina title card appears here, Nina slash Ellen, um, because apparently she's pining for her lost love. Um, she's just pining all over the place, uh, but especially on a ominous looking beach. Uh, in some pretty cool dunes, which are covered in crosses. And I want to know if we're getting foreshadowing of, like, her among graves here, or if this is some kind of... This would have been just after World War One. Lost to time custom slash reference here that we're just not quite getting. But as a modern foreshadowing for being among graves, it works. It, it works. Uh, so she gets a letter from Jonathan slash Hutter, who the one that we saw him writing earlier, where he's like, oh, I got bit by a giant fucking mosquito. Two giant fucking mosquitoes. Uh, uh, meanwhile, Harker, we cut back to Harker slash Hutter, who is recovering in a hospital. Um, and does attempt to leave at this point because apparently his fever is better and he is ready for travel and he is done being duped and he is ready to ride to save the day. Um, and then we get a truly badass looking sailing ship scene. Just a full piratey, lots of sails, pretty cool sailing ship. Uh, cue traveling montage, really, in this moment because both... Hutter and Orlock are racing back to the town. Uh, Hutter overland on horse. Yes, Hutter Orlock by sea. Orlock by sea. Um, so Renfield snatches a guard's newspaper and reads an article about a new plague, which is traveling along the coast and is definitely not vampiric. Uh, it is vampiric. Spoiler alert. Orlock apparently can't hold it together. He's just spreading plague up and down the coast. Him and his rats, whatever combination thereof. Uh, People keep falling sick with puncture wounds on their neck. Yeah, so is it him draining them to the point of death? Or is he literally spreading disease? This is a question for the ages possible uh either one could you maybe he is making them weak enough that whatever they were sick with already because it's you know it's not even set in 1922 it's set in like the 1800s and they were all like one rainy day away from dying of plague anyway so <laughs> it's entirely possible that it's just the fact that orlock munched them um in fact he's munching all the dudes all the dudes on his ship Clearly, he does not believe you need people to sail the ship because he's just happily using them as the cruise buffet as he is riding on his way to his new home, which he purchased thanks to Hutter. Uh, so the traveling montage continues, and we get the sense that Hutter is racing over land, Orlock is racing over sea, as Matt noted. So Orlock is creeping around on the ship, 
trying out some transparency powers, which would probably have been nice to to use back at home to not spook Hutter. I mean, if you can go transparent, why were you creeping at the end of his at the end of the hallway when he opened the door? So there's more ship stuff, ship stuff. Majestic sideburn guy, uh, truly majestic oh, sideburn yes. guy. Uh, it, I think it's implied. Mr. Sideburns is the captain. Sideburns, his sideburns might be the heroes of this movie. I mean, he clearly cares for it them. It was almost mutton chops, but like beard length. They were super impressive. Beard chops. Beard chops. I, I might go for that facial hair. Muttoneered. Just for the effect. Muttoneered. That's what we're gonna call it from here on out. Uh, so he's walking around with an axe, uh, attempting to confront the bad guy because only... Oh, it was the other guy with the axe. Uh-uh, the yes. First mate or His first whatever. mate is wandering around with the axe because everyone else be dead. Uh, so They're Orlok, literally the last two on the ship, and he wants to know what's in these boxes. Right, because we couldn't have done that when we had more people on the ship. Yes. So here we get the Orlock plank coffin standing up move. Well, before that... He breaks a couple boxes with the axe. Yes, rats, rats come pouring out, yes. and there's a scene of him chopping with the axe at the boxes where the rats were coming out. And I'm wondering how many rats did the actor actually chop? <laughs> because because it's this is 1922. Yeah, we didn't. I Nobody mean, cares about rats. We already had a hyena who of. Um, I don't know. Perhaps they took wonderful care of this hyena. I cannot make that assumption. I was yeah. not there. So as he's chopping on these boxes of dirt with rats pouring out, that's when we see the like apparition of Orlok sitting on one of the boxes. And when he looks over, it opens up. Yes, and we get the coffin opening up, Orlok sitting straight up. Pivoting like, on his feet. Pivoting on his feet out of the coffin, which is either going to be imitated or ridiculed in just about every Dracula variation. All the way up to Hotel Transylvania. Yes, literally. The Minion movie, this is not safe. This, if any part of this movie has truly entered pop culture, it is this moment where he sits out of the coffin. Uh, And it's well done. I mean, it's creepy. You can imagine you being... In a movie theater, this is the literally the first horror movie you have ever seen. And this creepy dude, we get a reveal. Because at this point, we've seen him for approximately five minutes of screen time. So he has not worn out his welcome. He is still creepy and novel. And then he rises out of this coffin. And, I mean, it's... it's inhumanly. Almost, inhumanly, yes. In the inhuman posture. And then we do cut back to Mina slash Ellen at this point, who is obviously struggling with some emotional upheaval. Uh, she awakes to have the fatal breath of the vampire blowing through the windows. Uh, because as stated, after he kills everybody, the only thing piloting the ship is the, the ship of death, the ship of death, which now has a new captain, according to the title card, and is piloted solely by the fatal breath of the vampire. <laughs> Uh, is blowing through the windows and tempts Ellen out onto the balcony in which she announces he's coming. But who does she mean? Because her lady, her love, not lady love, 
maybe Lady Love, he does do a lot of fainting, but hey, no, I'm not judging. Every man is allowed to have as much femininity as he, as he would like. Uh, but Hutter is on his way, as is Orlock. So Renfield slash Knock is just uh, excited that someone's coming, uh, but his loyalty isn't ambiguous at all, so we're pretty sure he's jazzed. Orlock is on his way. On the ship, the tarp over the hold rolls back. And magically. the lid magically. And the lid to the hold rolls back all by itself. And Nosferatu sticks his head out. And he looks super jazzed. He's stoked. He is stoked to be on this boat. His ears are wagging, his hair is fluffy, his eyes are bright. He's here, he's arrived, he is so excited. Uh he's super jazzed. Uh until he has to carry his own coffin. Through Which the entire he doesn't seem town. too upset about. I and mean, yeah, but I mean, the whole town, all of it. He just picks his coffin up and then he has to haul it, which he probably killed the porter. So. Which, as a demonstration of strength, is pretty impressive because he has this like six and a half foot long by two foot by two foot box uh, implied full of dirt. Which makes me wonder about his mental like telekinetic powers. He can roll things back. He can open doors. He can lift covers to his coffin. But he can't just float. But he the can't coffin. just float his coffin. If he was hit, uh, an independent supernatural entity with telekinesis, he probably would have figured this stuff out. But at the time, you didn't have a lot of the concepts of how to use these powers in very clever ways. That's been a huge part of like sci-fi fantasy culture is the things that authors do to make a lot of these stories interesting is figure out clever ways for the characters to use these innocuous powers. Right. So we're getting like early days here, early days telekinesis. We can open doors and stuff, but we're not thinking floating coffin. Plus, Effects wise, we're not there. That would have been hard to pull off. That would have been hard to pull off. So we get some more rats, more plague references, carries his coffin. Ellen wakes up, faints, wakes up to Jonathan, literally assaulting her with his love in a good way because she is jazzed. She's jazzed. You just can't tell from her face or his face, but it's because they're looking away. We don't get voice, of course, because it's silent, but we can assume they're both happy to see each other. So the Count and Hutter arrive at the same time, even though one traveled by land and one by sea. Uh, and then Orlok uh, is on a boat. He's made his way through the town. Oh, he's on a little dinghy he's on across a, dinghy. A, like, a creek or stream. He's a channel, perhaps. He's got to cross this waterway that cuts the city in two because, of course, Jonathan's home is on one side and then the beautifully dilapidated building that was sold to Orlock in what is obviously some kind of horrific tragedy because this guy bought this house unseen sight unseen it doesn't even have windows it's falling over I mean it's truly it's dilapidated it's kind of windows it has holes in the walls no glass there's, there's no, no glass. glass in the windows yes. so I don't know I think I'd, I'd spread the plague if I bought a house sight unseen and what I really bought was a ruin. 
And then not only that, but my real estate agent lives across the water from me, and he's got a sweet-ass house. With Literally some... just propping up his property value. Yeah. I mean, kind of on Orlock's side on this one. But he does take a little boat, which is... It's pretty impressive how well this guy carrying this six-foot-by-two-foot-by-two-foot wooden box, which I guess, what else would it be made of at the time? Uh, anyway, he's holding it like propped up on his hip like yeah. a laundry basket, balancing on this <laughs> tiny, narrow boat. Yes. Just floating across the stream, <laughs> propelled by the fatal breath of the vampire. <laughs> and and he's, he's balancing really well. I don't know if there was some assistance underneath the boat or anything, it's, or if this actor just pulled it off. I mean, he's pulled off everything so far, uh, being tall and lanky. Just, uh, he gets to his house and he just rent a ghost through the door. Doesn't open it. Fade out. Fade (laughs) out. Fade in. Teleportation. Uh, and then, meanwhile, the ghost ship is discovered. All aboard are dead. Uh, the ship's log mentioned the plague. Everyone gets totally. There's two people on board. There's the captain who is... I'm not sure if he's completely dead when they find him. Yeah, because he's tied to okay. the wheel. He tied himself in front of the wheel. Um, and I think they find the body of the first mate. Yes. But no other bodies. Actually, no. I think they only find the captain. I think that he's the only one. The first mate jumps ship, remember? It, that's he right. He sees Orlock and he dips. He just jumps over the side. So he's this, like, don't wait to kill me and then throw me overboard. I'll just do it all myself. Yeah. The harbor master or whatever finds the boat finds one body that's weird they find the ship's log oh and the ship's log states very clearly oh it was me and my first mate and like five crewmen and whatever oh well there's no other bodies that's suspicious so sus so they take the captain untie him from the ship's wheel which is a whole other thing i mean if he hadn't tied himself to the ship's wheel the ship gets lost at sea well, if you know there's an evil on board that's killed everybody, why do you tie yourself to the wheel so it'll make it into port? Because right. now you've you're dedicated delivering... the last moments of your life to ensuring that this great evil arrives in the city. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe we can assume he was, I don't know, hypnotized into doing it, but I don't think so because he ties himself to the ship and then Orlock shows up like, oh, yeah. I love it when they tie themselves up first. So. I don't know. Anyway, they grab this guy and take him into like a little town hall area and have a brief discussion about how it's probably the plague. And then they're all like, oh, snap. Well, and this they guy's a the plague ship's, victim. They read the ship's log. And the ship's log is like, oh, the plague is on the ship. And so-and-so died. And then, oh, two more people are sick. And oh, those people died. <laughs> yeah. So having all encountered, handled, been around... Poked, obviously been exposed poked, shifted ruffled this, this guy's hair whatever they're like oh my god you guys go home to your loved ones warn them that the plague is here so they all dip and leave this guy's dead body in the all of these people that if they convention center whatever if they were under is. the impression that this guy was carrying the plague they've all been exposed to it they've been touching this guy they're just going to take the plague home to their families <laughs> Right. This is a 2022 perspective on a 1922 problem. Right. Which, hold on. Hold on. I guess the movie was set in 
1800s. 1800s. Yeah. But even in the 20s, when the Spanish flu was ripping through the U.S. and uh, and Europe, everybody still wore face masks. There were government mandates to wear face masks. Yeah, but they we didn't knew how it was spread. Yeah, like through air, but we didn't really know the importance of touch yet. I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, they leave this body there to clean itself up, which, as I noted, over a long enough timeline, a body will clean itself up. Um, and the town Nature crier goes out. Hmm? Nature takes care Nature of it. Nature takes its course. So a town crier goes out to tell everybody to keep their sick out of the hospitals. Ooh, an- another note. It's kind of like one of our children said, there's no point in me cleaning my room because if I leave it long enough, mama will clean it up. <laughs> Uh, exactly. Mother nature. Mother nature. <laughs> Even she doesn't get a break. So a town crier goes out to tell everyone to keep their sick at home out of fear of the plague by order of the burgomaster of Bremen, which is Bremen in one version and it's Fisberg. Fisberg in the other one. Uh, and then we see a coffin walking solemnly down the street. Not by itself, obviously. It's being carried by people. If the coffin yes, was walking, carried, we'd have It's carried by four problems. people. Um, and obviously, the plague has struck. Um, and Jonathan slash Hutter, klepto that he is, has taken the Book of Vampires back home. And Mina slash Ellen is desperate for something, so she can't resist it. So he has warned her against this book. But obviously, it has the narrative pull of Twilight, and she cannot get away from it. He's and probably her. Probably every male in her life has warned her off from every book, and the books that she's read, she's thought, "Oh, that was actually pretty good. I want to read more books." And then here's just another human with a penis telling her, <laughs> "Don't read this book. It'll poison your mind." <laughs> Well, that's what everybody said about every other book I've read. This one can't be bad. And so Matt invents the whole romance genre. (laughs) 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 I can't read this. Oh, God damn. I need something new to fat to. Ah, yes. Look at this. Jonathan has brought home this book of vampires. (laughs) Are they the strong, sexy type? (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) She's like, ooh, is this a supernatural romance? I love supernatural romance. (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't love a good supernatural romance? So clearly, Ellen is willing to believe that this book of vampires is a supernatural romance because she pours over it with all the attention one gives any new, some variation of vampire having his way with a young, sexually inexperienced woman uh, would do. So she does find out that a woman who is pure of heart, who offers her blood freely, can break the spell of the vampire. By ensnaring the vampire's attention so much that he doesn't notice that it becomes mourning. So this is a little, we have some parallels here with the unicorn myth. The, if you put a virgin naked in the forest, you can catch, you can capture a unicorn with it, which has a lot of sexual connotation, which we would get into in another time, because unicorns themselves, having a single horn, get a little bit sexual. So anyway, in the one version we watched, it's referred to as a woman pure of heart. And in the other version we watched, it's a woman who without is without sin. sin. So I thought that was an interesting disparity, pure of heart versus without sin. 
one could probably wax pretty far into, are we talking about, is she a virgin? Is she simply without sin? If one assumes they are without sin and is willing to state they are with sin, like is willing to bank on the fact that they're without sin and that they can capture a, va- a vampire that way, is that the sin of pride? <laughs> but anyway, uh, I thought that was an interesting thing that kind of varied between the two. Yeah, interesting phrasing choice. Yeah, interesting phrasing choice. Uh, So having learned that, she has some stuff to ponder. So we cut to some kind of filler while she has a chance to think that through. Uh, She points out Orlok's house to Hutter, and uh, he looks out the window, and Orlok's staring back at him out the window. And he's shook, like real, real shook. And she says, oh, he's always there, just like that. So Hutter bravely faints. (laughs) Uh, He sits in the chair first. He sits in the chair. So meanwhile, uh, sister slash Lucy, who Ellen stayed with while Hutter was out of town, has fallen ill. And her husband slash brother heads to get the doctor. Uh, Nina watches a procession of coffins walking down the street. Every time you look at this particular road, it's... The first time you look down at this road from this vantage point, it's the town crier with his drums, get everybody's attention, read the proclamation, tuck it back into his jacket, walk a little bit farther down. But then every other time you look at this road, it's one or more coffins being carried to imply how many people are dying. And then the last time is uh later um after knock escapes but yeah so she's watching this procession of coffins walking down the street a literal procession of coffins because apparently orlock is here and he is here to party he's thirsty he's got zero chill this man has been munching left and right since he got here I don't know how he expected to just show up and lay low if he's literally dropping bodies every single night, like multiple bodies. So the curse of the vampire has arrived, and Ellen is well aware of it as she sees these coffins walking down the street. Uh, So she again looks to the side where she has left this book conveniently open, and she reviews the bit about the peer of heart woman, and keeping the vampire by her side until sunrise. So Ellen has some food for thought. And I think at this tough moment, Hutter is still passed out in the chair. And she's kind of like, uh, like, are you going to wake up and help me? Or do I have to solve this problem myself? Well, I think it's more of a, oh no, you finally got back. And if I do this, we're going to be apart again moment that's a good point yeah i think that's what we're getting is the like i can she's struggling between do i stay with hutter do i stay around for hutter or do i sacrifice myself to save the town and possibly hutter in the because he's clearly gone through some shit so you know she's she's got a lot to think about and then we cut to renfield fleeing down the street which honestly is the least narratively interesting part of this entire movie which in the second version where he's knock and it's Count Orlock, um, he, there's a little bit more uh, text about Nock escaping. 
Yes. Yeah, so Nock has oh, escaped yeah, they, to be they with all his think, luck or luck. Yes. But the townspeople think that Nock is the vampire. Yes. And so after he escapes from the nice for the time prison uh, asylum institution, institution sanitarium, uh, there's about 10 people chasing him down yes. the road. And then by the end of it, the entire town is chasing him. And at one point he's chilling, possibly pantless on the roof and throwing stuff at people since it's a resolution issue. And yeah. since he doesn't have any obvious ammo, I, I'm just going to go canonically. He's throwing his feces at these people and laughing. Um, and then he does get rocks thrown back at him, but he continues laughing. And I mean, blah, blah, blah. We go on with this for a, really just a little bit too long. This And feels then he like... climbs down. And th- so this guy, you can tell he's pretty old. The actor is pretty old, but he's really spry. Yeah. Because he like gets himself like, down on kind of a flagpole thing sticking off the roof and just kind of hangs down off of it and drops and doesn't even really struggle with it at all. Yeah, I mean, the the funniest part slash most interesting part of this entire part is that Minas, Nina slash Ellen is stitching. <laughs> and me, two hard seltzers in, saw Ich lieben Dick and thought, I love Dick. Um so, hey, same, but I looked it up and it means I love you. In so, German. In German. So she's, the original adaptation. Yes, of this which movie this entire was adaptation German. was a German movie made for a German audience, hence most of the name changes. Uh, so she is creating something of her love for Hutter, perhaps as a way to kind of work out what she wants to do for her next step. Uh, maybe she's been stitching it all along. I don't know. We have a moment here where we're sort of seeing Nina uh, slash Ellen because every other time we've seen her, it's really in the context of Orlock. Orlock is doing something to Hutter and she's seeing it or Orlock is creeping outside her window and she's telling somebody about it. We haven't seen her just her having a moment except at the, at the very beginning when she's, when she's playing, playing with, with the, the cat. cat. Yeah, we we see her, but since then, we have really only perceived Ellen in the context of what Orlock is doing to her or someone that she loves. So this is kind of a moment where we are mirroring the first part of the book, where we are, or the first part of the movie, where we're seeing her as someone who is just in love with her husband and just trying to live that life in the sun, playing with the cat, getting flowers... Um, But really, that's all been taken from her. Um, So this is kind of a, this is a contrast moment for us, which still Nock is running around being kind of an asshole, hiding behind strategic fungus, um, getting recaptured. I mean, really, this part for me is the least narratively interesting. The whole Nock-Renfield thing is kind of a distraction. It's a distraction. It's not my favorite storyline. The viewers at the time were likely aware of the storyline of the Dracula novel. So, or even if they weren't, there may be some subtext here that we're not getting. Because as a modern viewer, not having voice is kind of, it's hard for us to grasp what's going on. Where there's probably a lot of narrative clues in their acting 
that we just don't see because it's not what we are trained to see because we it's like having subtitles on all the time once you have subtitles on all the time it's hard to hear what people are saying so once you can hear what people are saying all the time it's hard for you to view their body language in the way that somebody in 1922 would have but still i mean it's running he's running around he gets captured he gets sent back okay knock resolved uh so nina wakes up after all of this to see orlock creeping on her from his window again so she walks over to the window but is way too tired to open the window because it's so hard you guys to like open the window and stuff so she sort of faints all over the window uh and then orlock sees her looking a little weary uh, and takes the bait um, and opens the door to come to see her. Uh, but she chokes. Well, he, he turns to the side with his yes, arms kind of like, up in front of him, like, <laughs> like um, in the thriller music video. Like yes. this is the pose yes. that they strike in the thriller music and video. Again, and it's taken directly from this movie. Right. Again, here we have the origin of the creepy hands. The yeah. creepy hands zombie, the creepy hands vampire. He turns to the side. We get our OG creepy hands moment. And he, the the creepy hands silhouette yes. that you end up seeing in most horror but, movies. But we'll get there. We haven't gotten there first. Because first, she chokes, wakes up Hutter, uh, tells him to fetch a doctor. And he obediently does. Well, uh, Bulwer, who Bulwer. is Van Helsing. Yes, she she tells him to go fetch Van Helsing. Um, and he dutifully does, because he's, of course, vested in saving his lady love. Uh, but psych, she is fine. And now that Hutter Boy is off fetching the dock, she is ready to wait for Orlock. So here we get some more iconic shadow scenes, which considering what they had to work with, these shadow scenes are pretty fucking beautiful because we get this side pose of him walking up the stairs uh and then the orlock shadow gets to seduce her by clenching his hand over her heart um copping a shadow feel one might say and so then harker who is fetching van helsing hutter who is facing fetching bulver while mina um is acting as snack uh so then since he snacks for too long, the rooster crows and Orlock gets his, Oh shit moment. I snack too long. So then knock who has gotten caught again, freaks out, which is really just to sustain this plot at this point. There's, he doesn't do anything. He just looks out the window, freaks out a bit. Um, the sun rises out the window and count Orlock. He go poof. We get the cool transparency effect, and then he is a puddle of steaming ash uh, on the floor. And Hutter. And soon after this, Hutter and Bulwer slash Harker Van Helsing yes. arrive. And she, uh, Mina gets one moment to sit up, hold her lover in her arms one last time, and then faints, probably dies. Um, and the town is saved. We see Orlok's castle from earlier in the no- in the movie, but it is in ruins. So, alright. We also see Hutter slash Harker mourning his love, and in the background, and then in the foreground is Van Helsing 
wiping tears from his eyes because it's so sad. Yes. So the town is saved. Huzzah. And end of movie. We get our end title card. And that is Nosferatu 1922. What is considered one of the best vampire movies ever made by independent sources. Um, I will admit, up until this point, I had never seen this movie. I am a self-professed vampire aficionado. And I know it appears on literally every list and when anyone's ever made of like top vampire movies that you should watch. But I have just never found the ambition to watch this movie until this moment. Um, So let's say for the sake of argument that this is, since it's widely regarded as the best vampire movie ever written, that it is the best vampire ev- movie ever written. Well, how? Wh- why? Like, why do we think that? Why would anyone think that this is the best vampire movie ever made? Uh, the most interesting parts for me were in comparison to modern stories, where this establishes, this is like the forefather of pretty much every vampire trope. And horror trope. And, and horror trope. Yeah, I mean, uh, creepy hands. And so, in, from my perspective, that's most of the value of watching this movie is seeing where a lot of these conventions came from. But the story itself, eh, I mean, it's I wholesale lifted impressed. from Dracula. Wholesale. Right. Full stop. Wholesale lifted from Dracula, which... And some of the sources I was reading about, which I'll admit I didn't dig very deep, so um, several of the places I read stated that the original version did credit um, Bram Stoker as the creator of the storyline, and that really the name changes are to make it relevant for a German audience. Right. Uh, So I can kind of see... I don't know. I can... Bram Stoker's novel was groundbreaking in its time and then you take a movie like this based on what would have been a groundbreaking novel and it's got to feel groundbreaking right at the time it would have been an extremely groundbreaking movie yeah and i can i can see visually why if you were the type of person who watched a movie for the visuals um not necessarily for the storyline which we occasionally are i mean the shadow scenes, considering what they had to work with, one camera, uh, mostly natural light. I mean, those are well done. So we got several really well done shadow scenes. I think what we interpret in nineteen in twenty twenty two that doesn't translate is the acting, the overacting. And so, well, it's a lot more like stage acting. But it, even then. It wasn't, like, nuanced or anything. I mean, in the same way that early Hollywood movies are all stage acting. I mean, like Harvey or any of the other early movies, you're going to see, they're, they're mostly modeled off of stage acting. That right, You're, right. you're acting for the we, guy in the we back. We looked into it, and at that time period, actors were not respected. They were not paid well. They were more the playthings of the people making the movies and 
like super micromanaged. It wasn't like now where it's this very creative product yeah. of the individual. It's more like these people being recorded are just given lots of instructions about where to walk, what to do. So I think probably a lot of its street cred is the best vampire movie ever made really is just that it was the first. It was the first. I mean, it's that guy at the top Which of the comments. Culturally, there's a lot of value in being the first. Right. I mean, it's first on the scene for just a whole host of things, um, including bad fang makeup, um, especially fang marks. I mean, that's just a so whole other So Count Orloff, the vampire, his two front center teeth are his fangs. Yes. They are about half of an inch apart at the points. Which, yes. And the fang marks on everybody's necks are about... Inch and a half. Inch and a half, like three centimeters apart. Yeah. Well, that's going to carry on. That's a trope we'll, we'll see forever is nobody can measure the distance between somebody's canine and use that to make the fang, like the puncture mark prosthetic makeup. Right. right. You can't even have like the person just bite this... Foam. (laughs) (laughs) Anything. Bite anything so that I can see how this is supposed to look. But anyway, that's a whole other pet peeve that we will delve into deeply, I am sure. So also those two front word facing fangs, like the two fangs side by side in the front, really will set the standard for horror vampire makeup moving forward. I think because it's impossible to hide. So if you have normal human front teeth and you only get sharp predatory fangs past that you know if you're careful with the way you speak you're not going to see them but if you have these fangs in the front that you can't hide it becomes a much more horror element because you become far less human looking having these And so I think this becomes the standard for horror vampires. This movie becomes the standard in a way for horror vampires. Because really, Orlok doesn't make a whole lot of an attempt to seem human at any given point. He's completely bald. Aside from his And then he has these big, big ears. Bat-like ears. Bat-like ears. Um, And the just like long, thin fangs coming out from his front incisors and so looking at him you know something's going on there as long as you're not hutter yeah you're pretty sure he's not human yeah yeah so i think for me this movie always felt like a gatekeeping movie so it felt like if you were going to love vampire movies you had to love this like if you were going to love move if you were going to love music you've got to love the beatles and I, for me, it felt like that's why it appears on every single list. Because if your list is going to have street cred, it's got to have Nosferatu on it. Right. And so I think like that's you're why... you're not allowed into the fan community. Right. Like, you, you don't get to love vampire movies if you don't love Nosferatu. And I have to say, having watched it twice, without any impetus would I ever watch this movie again... Uh, I'm going to go on a rewatching score of this of 0 out of 10. I'm probably never going to recreationally view this movie again. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I wasted my time watching this movie, but um, I probably could have gotten more value out of listening to this podcast episode than I got from watching the movie myself. <laughs> right. I mean, I might say if I am walking somebody through the origin of some of these tropes, we might hit a couple highlights in this movie. Um, but just I clips. just the clips, you know, sitting up out of the coffin, the monster hands, just the silhouette, the shadow. silhouettes, shadows. I mean, those those are those are iconic. Yeah, I, I'll give it that. But narratively, is it something that I felt was so gripping? I want to experience this story again. No. And now that might just be because the Dracula story at this point is so told. Dracula specifically is so and told. so refined. Is so refined and so repetitive. And even though I am a self-professed vampire aficionado, I have never been a super fan of the Dracula story or any of its retellings with the possible exclusion of Gary Oldman because he's Gary Oldman and who doesn't love Gary Oldman. But besides that, I mean, just Dracula as a whole, I've always felt it to be an uninspiring character. Um, and that may be what it, I'm, I may be just projecting onto Count Orlock at this point, because I mean, let's face it, he is Dracula. Um, so there was a couple things that I noted trivia wise while I was reading that I thought were interesting, which um, of course this was a German movie made for German audiences in 1922. So, post-World War One, pre-World War Two, and there were a lot of people that felt that the changes to Orlok's appearance were reflective of the way that the Jewish community was portrayed at the time, with the larger nose and the hooked fingers and the idea... The um, very formal dress. The very formal dress, and the like pervasive idea at the time that... Um, Jews coming into the country were bringing either literal or metaphorical disease. And so Orlok himself was possibly a representation of what was considered uh, the Jewish threat at the time. Um, lots of people have said that's just crazy that's not it at all. Um, you can kind of see where they were coming from, from for that perspective. But again, that might be a 2022 lens right. that we look back and see it that way. Um, certainly there's nothing in the movie that I feel like would indicate that. Um, it's just something that I thought was interesting that somebody noted. Um, so we talked about the cultural impact just in general of like, also filming wise, where we get a lot of um, the vampires almost not in this. Orlok's actually on screen for like 10 minutes, maybe, out of the whole thing. So we get that the imagined threat is far worse than the per actually perceived threat. The actual visual threat is not as impactful as the one you can make up in your imagination, which carries forward to a lot of horror movies where we get the monster in only what they're doing, the effect that the monster is creating and not the physical monster himself. Right. The side effects of the monster rather than direct observation. Yeah, than the direct observation of the monster and how really that has far more horrific impact 
than actually seeing them. Um, and of course, in a, a game that Matt and I have played a fair amount of, uh, Vampire the Masquerade, there is a Nosferatu clan that looks like the Nosferatu from this movie. So, I mean, I don't think we can argue with the cultural impact of this movie. I think the only thing we're really saying is it's a little overrated, in my opinion. Um, I guess Guillermo del Toro, del Toro believes this is one of the best vampire movies ever made, but that's one of those things where it's artists appreciating artists, which is fine. Um, but that doesn't mean that everybody has to appreciate it and that you don't get to appreciate every other vampire movie if you don't love this one. Right. If you've spent a large portion of your life very like almost aggressively consuming and analyzing visual media, you're going to have a completely different perspective on this kind of thing than the average viewer. Yeah. All right. So we're going to end this with, if I had to, if you had to give an award for this movie, what does it get an award for? All right, I stone cold dropped this on Matt, so I'm going to throw mine in here while he's thinking about this. But mine goes uh, for the best faint in this movie. And I have to say for both duration, frequency, and uh, just dramatic impact, Hutter slash Harker definitely gets a best fainting award in this movie. Because he faints at literally every opportunity, including when the monster is literally sneaking into his bedroom. He covers his head up with his blankie and uh, passes out immediately. So I have to say, the uh, best faint definitely goes to Hutter. All right. My award for this movie would be least arm movement of a threatening monster character. Every time he's moving, his arms are still. They're either at his sides with fingertips around his knees because the prosthetics on his fingers are so long, or he has them up in thriller pose, just walking to the side or straight forward. Uh, yeah, no swinging. I wonder if the prosthetics were loose. Yeah, he, he definitely kept it tight. And I think our next movie that we're going to tackle is Shadow of the Vampire, which is a interesting take on the filming of this movie and the sort of fan theory that Orlok was actually a supernatural creature. Like a mockumentary. Like a mockumentary. Well, it's something like a mockumentary, which if I'm not mistaken, um, Count Orlok is played by Willem Dafoe. So I am much more looking forward to this movie than I was to Nosferatu. And I have to say this one narratively and uh, it didn't give us a lot to work with humor wise because maybe because there wasn't a lot of dialogue or maybe just because the scenes themselves were so simple. Right. There wasn't a lot of nuanced plot there was, at all. Yeah. There, I mean, it was a, it was a very straightforward, I mean, guy gets a job, goes to do the job even though he probably shouldn't surprise surprise it's a monster monster. wife freaks out wife ends up having to save him by sacrificing herself uh sacrifices herself for both her husband and the town um monster dies because he's duped by a beautiful woman the end i mean it's story story 101 um 
but I mean, it was, it was okay. It was all right. It was okay. But I'm going to go with a, an okay on that one. Again, I said it, like I said, I, I probably wouldn't rewatch it, but it's not to say that you can't love it. I'm sure there's lots of people out there that do, but, um, Orlock, um, was not my cup of tea. Uh, so with that, we will conclude the first episode of the strange and beautiful book club. So pat ourselves on the back because that took a lot of effort. <laughs> that took a lot of effort. And we did it. But we did it, you guys. Oh my gosh. And I'm really looking forward to the next one because I feel like I, I want a little bit more, more to play with. I need some more to play with. I feel like this was a good place for us to start because this is the start, right? This is the considered right, the first. Low risk. We weren't like missing out on opportunities. Right. But I, I just, I'm ready. I'm ready to have more to work with. So um, in the meantime, you can find us on Instagram and Patreon at the Strange and Beautiful Book Club. We do not have a website yet, but it Soon. is under construction. It's under construction, uh, along with our Discord channel, which is still under construction, and a sub- suggestion form, so you can give us something that maybe we can we can play with a little bit more than Nosferatu. Um, they are all on their way, so be sure to follow us on Patreon or Instagram uh, to keep up to date. Yeah, we'll announce the links for a suggestion form and probably an email address you can email suggestions to. And the Discord will be connected to the Patreon. Yep, so I think anything above the first tier on Patreon, you get access to our exclusive Discord channel where we will probably pop in occasionally. And we're hoping to schedule some live viewings so you can watch some movies with us because um, that can be a real treat. Uh, depending on how much beer is in the beverage fridge at the time. And how many shots Rachel uh, <laughs> calls Don't for Don't air all my business. Uh, so anyway. But uh, for any watch-alongs, we'll announce the the title like and the source. Are we going to watch it on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, whatever? Yes. So your legally obtainable copy. Uh, will be noted and we'll also be doing live watch around live watch alongs for certain patreon levels and other than that it will be available as a riff track so you can watch the movie with us not necessarily live but you can at least listen to us chit chat through the movie which we generally do um with every movie so which is kind of the inspiration for this podcast right because we literally can't shut up and sit down and just watch a movie so in the meantime (laughs) Uh, until next time be strange be beautiful bye
Hello, friends. I'm Rachel. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm drinking a beer. Let's try this again.